Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be back together again. Uh, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Amos, chapter 9. Amos, chapter 9. There's only eight, nine chapters in the book of Amos. And so today, uh, as the Lord allows, we will finish our study of the book of Amos. And you know what happens when we finish a book of study here at Calvary. Start planning ahead for your exciting celebration toward the end. We'll talk about that when we get there. Now, as you're turning to the last chapter of the book of Amos, let me just remind you, last week we began kind of the second section of the book. There's, As we said, there's nine chapters in the book of Amos. The first six chapters are a series of sermons that Amos delivers that are in written form for us to read and to consider. These are messages that God gave him to bring to the people, stand up somewhere, and deliver to the people, first six chapters. Then in chapter seven, the book kind of, it, it changes sort of its direction, the, the way in which um, things are communicated to us as the reader. Uh, and beginning in chapter seven, we have a series of these visions. There's five of them. Three in chapter 7, one in chapter 8, and then one in chapter 9. A series of visions that God gives to Amos about the coming judgment upon the nation of Israel. Uh, visions that he wasn't really even instructed to share, and yet Amos uh, eventually would. But it seems that they were these visions that God would lay upon Amos's heart so that Amos would have a sense of the magnitude of the judgment that was coming upon the people whom he was speaking to. And as we saw, God moved Amos's heart through that, so much so that in the first two of those visions, Amos cries out to the Lord, uh, begging him for his mercy. Please don't pour out your wrath in this way upon the Jewish people. Well, when we were together uh, last time, we looked at the first four of those visions. Uh, again, the visions of chapter 7 and the vision of chapter 8. But time didn't allow for us to look at the final vision. And so today we're going to do that. And that starts in chapter 9. So I'm going to read the opening uh, 10 verses of chapter 9. And I'd like you to read along with me. Amos chapter 9, verse 1. It says this, Now I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand shall take them. If they climb up to the heaven, from there I'll bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I'll search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. Verse 4, if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I'll command the sword and it shall kill them. And I'll fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts is he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers is the Lord God in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls upon the waters of the sea and he pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Verse 7 says, Are you not like the Cushites to me? O people of Israel, declares the Lord, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Verse 9, for behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, 
but no pebble shall fall to the earth. And all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say disaster will not overtake us. So here we have Amos's final vision. This time the vision uh, is not a basket of summer fruit or um, some of those other types of visions, typologies that we saw in the, in the previous chapters. This time it's a vision of the Lord himself. And it says it's a vision of the Lord himself standing beside the altar. Now, there's a couple of different ideas, trains of thought, as to what this altar might be, what it might refer to. And so there are some that think that this is the altar of the temple and that the Lord is going to bring, stand beside that altar, bring the temple down, the temple that is in Jerusalem. Uh, Then there are others that conclude that this altar refers to an altar in their false idolatrous temples that they built throughout the northern kingdom in places like Gilgal and Bethel and Dan and in other places. And I would have to say, ultimately, it doesn't really matter, quite honestly, which of the temples that it's referring to, because it doesn't really have a lot of bearing on the rest of the information that we learn in the chapter. But I would have to say I lean toward the latter, and I do so for three different reasons. The first is this, that all of the judgments, starting from chapter 2, verse Uh, seven, I believe it is, all of the judgments that are in the book are against the northern kingdom uh, and have been impacting things that would be found or the people of the northern kingdom. And so it seems a bit incongruent for me that this judgment would be poured out on the temple, which is down in the southern kingdom. Um, So that's one thing, especially since judgment isn't going to come against the southern kingdom for another 140 years. Uh, So that's one of the reasons why I lean toward it being uh, a temple, a false temple that was found in their kingdom. The second thing is you'll notice, uh, or you will know hopefully from your knowledge of the temple, that the temple itself, the key altar of the temple, what we call the bronze altar or the brazen altar, it was actually located outside in the courtyard of the temple, not in the actual structure or building that we sometimes think of when we think of the temple. That whole courtyard area, lots of worship took place there, and that's where the altar was located. And yet here in our, in our verse, it seems to be saying it's inside. And then lastly, you'll notice in verse 1, it says that the Lord's judgment, it speaks of the building coming down upon the heads of the people. And you'll remember that with the temple, the Jewish temple, the people didn't actually go into the building itself. They came into the courtyards. It was only the priest that went into uh, the actual building or temple structure. So for all of those reasons, I think we're referring to an altar that was set up to their false gods, that hybrid type of religion that the northern kingdom created where they're worshiping and serving their false gods with their false idols, but at the same time, they're equating that with their worship of Jehovah and thinking somehow he's going to be pleased even though they're disobeying his commands. One way or the other, the particular building isn't as important to the passage as the Lord's judgment coming upon the northern kingdom. That's really what this passage is about. And so whether it was the temple in Jerusalem or one of their false temples, the Lord's judgment upon them for their idolatry, it's going to remain the same. It's going to occur. And the Lord declares that he's going to bring the temple down on the heads of those that worship them. You'll notice he says uh, there in verse 1, he says, or actually, excuse me, yeah, verse 1, he says, strike the capitals, 
until the thresholds shake. Now, you may have a version that instead of the word capitals there, it uses the word the door lentil or the lentil. The door lentil is uh, the structure that runs across the top of the door frame. And so you have your post and you have your lentil. And oftentimes, the door lentil is considered one of the strong, structurally the strongest parts of a house. You, you may recall, I remember when I was little, I don't know why, I've never experienced an earthquake uh, here in New Jersey, though I know we just had one a few weeks ago, but I slept through it. Uh, and yet, I remember when I was a little kid, they taught us that the safest place for us to run, if we couldn't get outside, was to stand in the doorway. I don't know how 30 kids in a class were going to stand under that door lentil, but that was the plan that the nuns gave me, and they seemed like smart people. And so the most structurally sound place would be that capital, that threshold, that door lentil that was there. And so the point then is this, if the lentil has been destroyed, then the whole house has thus fallen in. And so this is sort of Amos's way, a poetic way, a powerful way to describe the complete destruction that was going to come upon the nation of Israel and particularly upon this temple of theirs. If you look at the next phrase, it really seems to amplify that point. It goes on, it says, and not one of them, not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. It's as if the Lord is saying, look, you can run, but you're not going to be able to hide. You're going to try and flee away, but you're not going to escape from me. He continues in that theme. Look at verse 2. He says, if they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to the heaven, from there I'll bring them down. Now, Sheol, it's a word we see a lot in the Bible. Uh, it's a term which means the grave or the pit. Sometimes it's, uh, it's representative of hell. I mean, that's quite a pit. And so whether you go down into the pit, down into the grave, or as he says in the next one, you go up into the heights of heaven, you climb up into the heavens, in either of those places or in neither of those places, will you be able to hide Israel from the judgment that is coming upon you? That's the theme of what we're developing here. Look at verse 3. He says, if you hide yourself at the top of Mount Carmel... Uh, or if you go to the lowest points in the depth of the sea, he talks about the bottom of the sea. He says, even there, I'll search you out and I'll find you. In verse 4, he talks about even if they were taken away to the place of captivity, notice in verse 4, he says, look, I'll make sure your judgment is complete by commanding the sword, even there in your captivity, to find you and to come against you, to kill you. And so the point then of these opening four verses is that there will be no place for Israel to hide from the judgment that God is about to bring upon them. And again, as we've been looking in this entire study of, our, of the book of Amos, God had been calling out to the people and disciplining them in what we'll call lesser forms of discipline for the purpose of bringing them back to them himself. But they would continually refuse to hear, to heed, to repent, and to return. And as a result, this judgment is coming upon them. And it's a strong judgment. We know ultimately it'll be the captivity uh, in Assyria where so many of the Jewish people would die even before getting into that captivity or die while in that captivity. Now, as we sit here this morning, as we consider these things, as you sit in your home, they're considering, you might hear that and you might think, you know, this doesn't sound a whole lot like the God with whom I have a relationship, but I want to remind you that there is a distinct difference 
between the relationship that we have with God as New Testament believers and the relationship that the Jewish people enjoyed with God in the Old Testament. Because the New Testament believers' relationship with God is a relationship that is established upon the grace of God, the grace of God that we are able to experience because of the work of his Son, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament believers' relationship with God was not established upon grace or by grace, but it was established upon the law and the keeping of the law. And so one of the sort of the, the consummate uh, passages in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 26, 27, and 28, it says essentially, you do these things, you keep these laws, and I'll bless you. You do not do these things, or you violate these things, or you do these other things, and I will bring a curse upon you. That's how the law works. That's how the law worked. Now, was grace present in the Old Testament? Of course it was. It's the nature of God, the character of God. But the blessing that people experienced under the old covenant was a, a blessing in their life or in their nation that was based upon their keeping the law. And again, that's the essential part of the old covenant, the promise of blessing and cursing based on obedience and disobedience. And so if Israel wanted to continue in their chronic, systemic disobedience against the Lord, well, then they could expect nothing else but for God's hand to be removed for them, from them and even his eye to turn upon them for judgment. I want to read to you sort of a lengthy passage, and if you have your Bible, I really want to encourage you to turn there. This is back in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is the third book of your Bibles, so head toward the beginning, Genesis, Exodus, and then there's Leviticus. And one of the last chapters in that book is Leviticus chapter 26. So would you please begin turning there, Leviticus chapter 26, because I think it explains what's going on here and sort of this difference that in understanding that we might have as New Testament believers. I think Leviticus 26 explains it very well. So starting in verse 3 of that chapter, it says this, if you walk in my statutes, God speaking to the Jewish people, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land will increase its yield, and the trees of the field will yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the great harvest, harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely." I'll give peace in the land, and you, you shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. And I'll remove the harmful beasts from the land, and the sword will not go through your land. Verse 7, you will chase your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred, a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. I'll turn to you, and I'll make you fruitful, and multiply you, and will confirm my covenant with you. You'll eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. And I'll make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not abhor you. And I'll walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. So catch some of those things there. If the people would listen to God, that's how the first verse there kind of begins, verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments, then these things are going to happen. If the people would listen to the Lord obey the Lord, God would pour out his blessing upon them. 
as he says in verse 12, he would walk among them and be their God. Now that Leviticus passage goes on and it tells us what would happen if the people wouldn't obey the Lord. They wouldn't listen to the Lord. They wouldn't keep his commands. It says, I'll summarize it, he would remove their hand of blessing from them. And so skipping down to verse 14, he says, but if you will not listen to me and you will not do all of these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then this is what I'll do to you. Verse uh, 16, I'll visit you with panic, with wasting disease, with fever that consume the eyes and make the heart to ache. And you will sow your seed in vain for your enemies will eat it. I'll set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee when none is even pursuing you. If in spite of this you will not listen to me, then my discipline will be a little more severe, he says. He says, I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. Verse 19, I'll break the pride of your power. I'll make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. No rain. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land will not yield their fruit. So God very clearly, uh, some, let's see here, about 800 years earlier, told the nation of Israel what it was they could expect from him. And that is, if they rejected him and his ways, look at verse 17 of the, Le the Leviticus passage, I'll set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Verse 17 goes on and says, And those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee even when none is pursuing you. Pretty clear. Go down to verse 27 of that passage. We haven't read it yet. It describes almost exactly what the northern kingdom is about to experience in our Amos study, again, 800 years later. It says in verse 27, but if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I'll walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you for your sins. He says, you shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. I'll destroy your high places. I'll cut down your incense altars. I'll cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I'll lay your cities waste and make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And, if and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled by it. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheathe the sword after you and your land will become a desolation and your cities will be laid waste." And that's exactly what Amos has been communicating to this northern kingdom, that the Assyrian Empire was about to come in, was about to besiege them, was about to starve them out, was about to break the walls of their city and lead the people away captive. And so 800 years or so earlier, God told the nation what exactly would be their fate if they continued in their rebellion. And because they continued in that rebellion, now those consequences were coming to pass. I'll tell you, as I read these things, I'm reminded of how fortunate we are as Christians to live under the blessing of the new covenant. 
Because under the blessing of the new covenant, we know that because of our standing in grace by faith, that God is for us. That all of the judgment that we deserve was perfectly poured out on Jesus Christ. And to quote the Apostle Paul, he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Those are incredibly comforting words for us. Now, does that mean that we will never experience discipline in our lives as Christians? Of course it doesn't. We've been looking at that. We've been looking at the Hebrews passage, which talks about the Lord disciplining the one that he loves. But ultimately, we stand upon the grace of our Lord. And so Paul or John tells us, if we uh, realize that we have sin, what's he say? Look, if you confess your sin, God's faithful, God's just, and he'll forgive you of your sin, and he'll cleanse you of your unrighteousness. Now consider those words, faithful and just to whom? Not to you. Because you deserve judgment. I deserve judgment when I sin. He's faithful and just to the sacrifice of his son. And so if we confess our sin, we're Christians, we confess our sins, the Lord is faithful and just. He'll cleanse us of our unrighteousness. Let's return back to our Amos passage. We want to pick up in chapter 9, verse 5. Amos 9, 5 says now, The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers, verse 6, in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Amos does something that he did earlier in the book. He reminds his listeners of whom it is that he is speaking. He's been referencing the Lord, and this is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord is going to do. And yet the people have been ignoring the Lord. They've been dismissing the words of the Lord. Amos here, he takes a moment to say, look, this is who you have been ignoring. This is the one whose words they have been dismissing as insignificant or not really worthy of their attention, certainly not worthy of paying attention to. And as you trace the narrative of the Jewish people through the the Old Testament, the history of the Jewish people through the Old Testament, what we discover is that in those times when they remember who the Lord actually is, they remember his might, they remember his glory, they see what it is he has done, on behalf of his people, it's those times that they acted in a way that magnified God's glory. And what I mean by that is they lived out their calling here on the earth, and they honored him with the life that they were living, and God poured out their blessing upon him for the glory of his name. And so when they recognized who he was, they lived in a manner that honored who he was. And conversely, as you make your way through the Old Testament, you take notice of the times that when they forgot who the Lord was, they forgot how mighty he was, how powerful he was, and so on and so forth, and they allowed him to become small in their own eyes, that's when they proceeded to go after their own fleshly desires and their sin. And when God was made small, their sin was magnified. And that's what they would begin to run after. And I think this carries over into our walks with the Lord as well, because I've come to experience, and I imagine you have as well, you'll notice in your life that it's those times that the Lord is magnified in your life. Those times, for instance, where you take sort of a little break from everything and you go away on a retreat or a conference. 
and your thoughts, he's magnified in your thoughts. You spend time considering him, thinking about him, fellowshipping with others that are doing so as well. Or it's those times where there's a renewed effort on your part to really nurture your prayer life or your time in God's word, uh, a daily quiet time. And you'll notice as that's happening in your life and the Lord is magnified in your life, there's a subsequent response with the type of life that you're living. You're responding to frustration differently. You're responding to temptation differently. It's as the Lord is magnified, the results begin to show in the life that we are living. It's those times where we contemplate who he is and what he has done that our hearts are drawn to a deeper sense of devotion to him. But again, here you have the people of Israel, they would not listen, despite what uh, the attempts of Amos to get them to listen. They will not listen. And so after reminding them of who the Lord is, Amos begins to remind them of what the Lord has done. He reminds them in verse 7 and following uh, the ways in which the Lord had previously dealt with the surrounding nations. You remember he did that at the start of the, our study of the book, chapter 1 into chapter 2, how he dealt with the people of Damascus, how he dealt with the people of uh, Gaza and Tyre and the Moabites, the Ammonites, and so on and so forth, and how he dealt with them. And he does that again here in verse 7. He says, are you not like the Cushites to me? Or, O people of Israel, declares the Lord, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kerr? Now, the Cushites were a foreign people that ran after their foreign gods. And he says here, Amos says here, that the Lord brought judgment upon them for that. The, the people of Kaftor were a foreign people that went after their foreign gods. And the Lord brought judgment um, upon them, and Kerr, and so on and so forth. And so these places are listed much like they were listed in the opening chapter and, and a little bit of the, the next chapter. Those were wicked nations that walked contrary to the Lord, and they were judged for doing so. And Amos makes the point that he made earlier in the book. He essentially is saying, look, is it unreasonable to expect that Israel will suffer the same fate as those nations did. And in fact, as we learned in one of our previous studies, Israel's judgment would be even more severe because Israel had, if you will, the, um, the privilege of knowing who the Lord actually was, knowing what the Lord wanted them to do. Israel, as we said, they were a greatly privileged people, but with that great privilege came a great responsibility. And Israel failed in keeping those responsibilities. And so not only would a judgment come upon them as it did the other nations, it would come upon them in an even stronger form. And so in verse 7, the Lord says he dealt with the land of Egypt. He dealt with the land of Kaftor. He dealt with the people of Kerr. Now he says in verse 8 that he's going to deal with the sinful northern kingdom. As the Lord dealt with those other nations, so too would he now deal with the sinful northern kingdom of Israel. The Lord couldn't have been more clear. Israel could not presume that she was somehow going to be immune from God's judgment. And he makes it very clear that the judgment is coming upon them. But I want you to notice something in verse 8, because it's here where the book begins to take a, a most unsuspected uh, or expected turn. 
Notice verse 8. It says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I'll destroy it from the surface of the ground. And then it says, Except. And if you're like a write-in-your-Bible kind of person, I might circle the word except here because it's so significant to the direction of this book. It says, except I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. What a surprising statement to read in light of the entire context of the book that we have been reading. God should have judged them. He most certainly could have judged them. And yet he says he will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. And so despite declaring that his eyes were upon them as a sinful nation, he nevertheless promises that he will not utterly destroy them as a sinful nation. I just think that's remarkable. It's almost as if the Lord can't help himself. That despite the judgment that Israel has brought upon himself, that he just has to show mercy and grace to the nation of Israel. I'm reminded of Paul's words in 2 Timothy, in which he tells, Paul tells Timothy, he says, look, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. That's who he is. He's faithful. And so here, God in his faithfulness will always preserve a remnant of those who are faithful to him. In fact, God in his faithfulness must always preserve a remnant of those that are faithful to him. And so you have this nation who, despite their many repeated sins, God will continue to remember the promise that he made to Adam and the one that he made and continued to make to Abraham and the one to Jacob and Noah and Moses and David and the promise that he ultimately made to all of his people regarding a coming one that would save his people from their sin. And of course, we're talking about Jesus the Messiah. And so despite the magnitude of their rebellion, the Lord promises he will always preserve a remnant. And he promises a day of coming restoration, which we'll see as we continue in the chapter. And so he says here in verses 8 and 9 that he's going to use that exile of Israel that he's going to bring upon the nation because of their sin, that he's going to use that exile to sift his people. You see that there uh, in verse 9. He says, I'll command, I'll shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a, with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. He says that he's going to use the captivity to sift his people, not to destroy them, but to purify them, to purify a remnant. And so as one might separate the wheat from the chaff, so too the Lord is going to separate those righteous of his people from those, as it says in verse 10, are the sinners of his people. As I read this, two passages come to mind as we consider these things. The first is Elijah in the book of 1 Kings and the faithful remnant that God promises Elijah that he has kept for himself. 7,000, I believe the number is. The second passage that I'm reminded of is the passage in regard to righteous Lot, as Peter describes him, who we read about in Genesis 19, the Lord rescued out of the judgment that was coming upon Sodom and Gomorrah. I think Peter explains this whole concept well that I'm referring to when he says in 2 Peter 2, he says, the Lord knows 
how to rescue the godly from trials and how to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. The Lord says, I'm going to destroy Israel, but I will not utterly destroy Israel. And as he has always done, he preserves a remnant. Which brings us now to this final paragraph or so of the book, the final portion of the study of the book of Amos, where the Lord restores the nation of Israel. Not just a small remnant of righteous ones, but an entire nation of people living lives unto the glory of God as they were designed from the very beginning to do. And so the Lord, he's still speaking here. Amos is writing all this down for us. It begins in verse 11. The Lord speaking, it says, In that day, I'll raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and I'll repair its breaches. I'll raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Verse 13, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I'll restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They'll plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I'll plant them in the land, and they'll never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now, when I read those final five verses, it's, it's, such, it's so surprising to me to read these. I don't expect these verses at the conclusion of this book. One commentator described it as the sword of judgment giving way to the trowel of recon reconstruction, you know, the, that little tool that you use to um, rebuild the walls. And rather than ending the book at the judgment of verse 10, the book of Amos continues so that instead it ends with the promise that the kingdom will be restored. And you'll notice some of the things that uh, will be connected with that restoration. The kingdom will be restored, the heathen, the Gentile, will be subdued, will come to uh, underneath the rule as well. Agricultural blessings will be renewed. Security will once more exist in the nation. And then forever, uh, that security will exist and the for the people of Israel. Forever, they'll remain in the land there. That's quite a bit of blessings during this time of restoration. Now, I think all of us would agree, if, if I were to ask you, give me a key word, what's the book of uh, Amos about prior to this morning's study, I think all of us would, would throw out words that are akin to the word judgment. The book of Amos is about God's judgment upon the people of Israel. In fact, there are many liberal commentators that wonder if these final five verses were actually a part of the original book or not. They just don't feel like they fit in the book at all, and so they were probably added later on by someone who wanted to soften the message a little bit. And yet, as we see with so many of the other Old Testament writers, what Amos does is he makes it clear that while judgment will indeed come upon the nation for their sin, that beyond that judgment, there will be a day of great national blessing as God turns the heart of the people once more unto himself. And that's what these final five verses are about. And we're going to see here, there's five special blessings 
that are pronounced, five blessings that the, the future restored nation of Israel can expect in that day or in those days. Verse 11 is the first. It says in verse 11, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and I'll repair its breaches. That word booth, maybe your version says the tabernacle of David or the tent of David. And it refers to the house of David. 250 years earlier, prior to this study that we're looking at here, 250 years earlier or so, the northern kingdom rejected the house of David. That's when the nation split. You recall that uh, after David, his son Solomon was king. Then after Solomon, his son, a man by the name of Rehoboam, became king. And the northern kingdom, those 10 tribes, didn't like this Rehoboam, didn't like the way that he was setting out to rule the nation. And so a civil war ensued where the nation split into two, a southern kingdom that was under the leadership of Rehoboam, who was from the house of David, and a northern kingdom that was under the leadership of a man not from the house of David, a man by the name of Jeroboam. And so they had rejected the house of David over them. Here, God promises to restore David's royal line. And he's going to restore it by firmly entrenching his son, who again is of the house of David, his son, Jesus Christ, a descendant of David. This is the first of the key things we learn about Israel in the days of their future restoration. And that is that the throne of David will be restored and God's promises to David will be fulfilled. Jesus Christ will literally rule over a restored Israel. Second thing that we notice is found in verse 12 here, and it speaks of all the nations that are called by his name. The second thing of this future restored Israel is in relation to all the nations being called by his name. Now, all those nations, that phrase, it refers to all of those Gentile nations. And so through Amos, God is announcing that even Gentiles that are called by his name are going to come under the, the booth of David or under the rulership of the house of David, which again is a promise that is fulfilled in Jesus. I'm a Gentile. I suspect the majority of people that you come in contact with when you go to church or whatever it might be are Gentiles as well. And yet, through Jesus, we're able to have a relationship with God without actually having to become a Jewish proselyte. And why is that? Because God called us, even as Gentiles, unto himself. You remember this was discussed and debated and argued about even in the New Testament book of Acts. Acts chapter 15, we read that the early church wasn't quite sure what to do with this influx of Gentiles that had come to believe in Jesus. Prior to that time, the vast majority of people, if like 99% of people that believed in Jesus were of a Jewish background. And yet, through Peter, God opened up this door that many, many Gentiles began to come to faith and Paul's ministry among the Gentiles and so on and so forth. And then the question began, should these believers in Jesus, do they need to live and act in accordance with the Old Testament law? Well, they didn't know. This was all new to them. And so they began to discuss and debate it and argue about it a little bit. The question eventually, it makes its way. This is all in Acts 15. You can look at it another time. The question eventually makes its way 
to what became known as the Jerusalem Council. And there the apostles and others, they sought the Lord in prayer about this particular issue. They began to reason amongst themselves about this particular issue. And after much discussion, finally the Lord's brother, James, he stands up and he says, we have this in Acts 15, he says, brothers, listen to me. Simon, Simeon, uh, Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Now you'll notice, then James goes on to quote the very passage we're looking at in the book of Amos. He goes on in verse 15 of Acts 15 to say, And with these words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I'll rebuild the tent, the tabernacle, the booth of David that has fallen. I'll rebuild its ruins and I'll restore it. Then the remnant of mankind will be able to seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And so what our friend James does is he uses the Amos passage to demonstrate that God promised to reach the Gentiles and to bring him into his kingdom, not under Israel, not as Jewish proselytes, but under the Messiah. They were, as it says in another place, they were as a branch that had been grafted in to Israel. That's God's second promise referring the restoration of Israel. One, he's going to raise up a Messiah that will be seated upon the throne of David. And the second is he'll bring in the Gentile nations from every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every people. There's a third promise that we see in verse 13 here about this future restored Israel. And that is God's blessing upon the agricultural production, a very practical agricultural production of the land. You'll notice in verse 13, it's so much so that the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, he who sows the seed. God's hand of blessing was going, would, would return upon the land with such abundance in that day that the plowman and the reaper, who were supposed to labor separately, one labors at the beginning of the planting, the other one labors six months later at the end of that particular planting, but they would be so blessed that the plower and the reaper were going to begin bumping into one another and stumbling one another, one another, over one another because the land was producing so abundantly. And so through Amos now, God announces that third blessing the pouring out of his hand of blessing upon the agriculture of the land. Fourth blessing is found in verse 14. It says, I'll restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities, and they will inhabit them. They'll plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And here's this fourth blessing that a future restored Israel will experience, and that's the blessing of the complete restoration of the land of Israel to the people and the people to the land. They would return to their land. To some degree, that was fulfilled, uh, at least partially, in 1948. And you consider 1948, just a few years after World War II and the pouring out of, uh, of Hitler, uh, I, I, satanic Hitler, quite frankly, the pouring out of his wrath against the Jewish people, 
where one-third of the people, the Jewish people, would be killed during that five, six-year period of time. And just three years after that war, the nation of Israel, after close to 1,900 years of being out of the land, the very land that had been given to their father, Abraham, they were able to return to the land. They were able to return to their ruined cities and to their destroyed vineyards and their gardens, and they were able to possess them once more. Now, I don't believe 1948 was the final fulfillment of what Amos is speaking about here in 914, but it's an indication of the type of fulfillment that will occur. The restoration of the people uh, to the land, it's only just begun, and it will be fully realized in the millennium when Jesus establishes his throne and he begins to reign on the earth in righteousness. The restoration of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. One more promise that the Lord gives in this book, presents to us here in this book as he begins to bring the book to a close. And this one final promise, it's in verse 15. He says, I'll plant them on their land and they'll never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord. And so despite all of the promises in this book of a judgment that is coming upon Israel in the form of a coming captivity, exile at the hands of the Assyrians, all those things we've been considering, despite all of those comments about that, God promises here an eternal restoration where Israel will never again be removed from the land. Israel's final restoration to the land will be a perpetual restoration where God will plant his people in the land and they will never be driven out again. And so while verses 11 through 15, they seem to be a bit out of place as they relate to the rest of this book, the reality is this, without these final five verses, the book itself would be incomplete. And I say that because these final five verses, they reveal the purpose of God's discipline in the lives of his people. And again, that is that they may turn back to him. God's wrath upon his people is to bring about the return of his people. And so, brother and sister in Christ, God continues to work in that same way in our lives as well. And so when God pours out his discipline on us because of area of sin in our lives, Areas of sin that he's been trying to bring to our attention. You remember I said earlier, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just. That word confess, it means if we acknowledge our sin. And so the idea there is God has already laid it on your heart that what you did was sin. It's our responsibility to acknowledge that as such. And so here, if God has been trying to get our attention by revealing sin in our lives, and we refuse to respond, we refuse to hear and listen and repent and confess, well, then he has to ramp up the discipline in our lives as well. Again, for what purpose? Because he's mad at us? To get even with us? To teach us a lesson? God brings discipline in our lives because he loves us. And he brings discipline in our lives to get us to turn to bring us to our senses, that we would realize the error of our ways, say to ourselves, what am I doing and why am I doing this? Is it even worth it? Again, God's discipline is about causing us to return to him. And that's what God was seeking to accomplish and would forever or eternally accomplish 
And that's the message that we have in the book of Amos. God seeking to call his children back to himself once and for all by whatever means might be necessary. Amen? We're going to invite our worship team back up. As we've been mentioning the last few weeks and uh, today, we are going to be celebrating communion today. And during these last five weeks or so, six weeks I think now that we have been in the book of Amos, I have to admit, uh, we've been... We've been looking a lot at the pouring out of God's wrath upon sin. And so as we began our study, we took notice of his judgment upon the Assyrians and the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, even upon the Jewish people, the people of the southern kingdom and of the northern kingdom. And in each of those instances, the measure of the the people's sin had risen to a level where the Lord and his righteousness had to pour out his judgment. And frankly, if we are honest here this morning as we watch this, we know that the measure of our sin merits God's judgment as well. I, I know that our sin has probably not risen to the magnitude of these foreign nations or even the Jewish people from the southern kingdom and from the northern kingdom. But we do know this, that even one sin alienates a person from a holy, from a holy God. Even one sin makes a person liable to the penalty of sin, which the Bible tells us is death. Paul says that the wages of sin is death. But here's what we know, and this is what we're going to celebrate this morning. We know that Jesus Christ took upon himself our penalty that we might take upon ourselves his righteousness. Paul the Apostle wrote, for our sake... God the Father made God the Son to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in God the Son we might become the righteousness of God. And this morning as we take communion, we're going to celebrate that together. Every time we take communion, that's what we celebrate together. Again, quoting the Apostle Paul, Paul wrote, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the Lord's death because there our sin and the judgment of that sin was transferred to him and his righteousness and the blessing of God's presence because of that righteousness was transferred to us. As Christians, we don't shamefully acknowledge the death of Christ. It's not something we sort of admit, but we don't like to talk about. We don't acknowledge it as happening as some sort of a defeat that maybe we can try to make the best out of it. Rather, we proclaim the death of Christ. Paul would say in a particular place, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation for every one of us that believes. And so we proclaim the death of Christ as the place where the price of our sin was paid for, where our salvation was won, and where access to the Father is made possible. And so with that, hopefully you have your communion supplies with you. We're going to take together the bread, which is a symbol. Let me grab this here. We're going to take together the bread, which is a symbol of the body of Christ. You recall the night that Jesus was betrayed? He gathered with his disciples at that Passover meal. We call it the Last Supper. He took the bread. He he, kind of held it up in front of them so they could all see. He broke the bread. And he said, this bread 
is the symbol of my body, which will be broken for each of you. A moment later, he took the cup uh, of wine and he said, and this cup is the symbol of my blood, which will be poured out on your behalf. As Paul said here, every time that we take the bread and the cup, we do so in remembrance of what he did at the cross. And so brothers and sisters, let's take the bread reminding ourselves that it's because of his broken body that our sins are forgiven. And together, let's take the cup as a reminder that his blood was poured out on our behalf. Amen. Let's pray together. We're going to pray together, and then we'll close out our time in worship. Father, we want to thank you for the ability to, to look back in remembrance that the cross wasn't a, wasn't a place of defeat, but it was the place of victory. How shocked and surprised the enemy must have been uh, when it appeared Christ was being defeated, when in reality the gates of heaven were swung wide open because of the work of the cross. And so, Lord, we look back, we acknowledge your broken body, your shed blood is what earned us any righteousness that we have, that the righteousness of Christ becomes our righteousness, and because of the righteousness of Christ having become our righteousness, you look upon us and you see us as if we've never sinned. We're justified in your sight. And so we rejoice in that. And as we finish a book like the book of Amos, which is it's a tough book for us to read about a coming judgment, we remind ourselves in a very fresh way today that your wrath was poured out on your son so it wouldn't have to be poured out on us, on us. And we rejoice in that. Bless your people, Lord, with a sort of a renewed uh, understanding of that reality, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close out our time together with a song, and then I'm going to come back and uh, give you some final uh, instructions. <laughs>